Hello again, and welcome back to An Aesthetic Education. I am very pleased and delighted to welcome to the show Dr. David Bellingham from Sotheby's Institute of Art in London, where he is the program director for the MA in Art Business. David holds a special honors degree in Latin and classical archaeology from the University of Birmingham and a doctorate from the University of Manchester, where his thesis work focused on ancient Roman and Pompeian wall paintings. I know there's a lot more to it than that. As an art historian, David has written books and articles on a variety of topics, including but not limited to our business ethics, the paintings of Sandro Botticelli, and authenticity issues in the paintings of Franz Halls. David also hosts his own podcast called The Art Business Podcast, where he speaks with industry experts and specialists about all the cultural and business goings on that are happening in the art world right now. I had the distinct privilege and pleasure to be one of David's students when I completed my MA in art business at Sotheby's this past year, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with him today. David, welcome again, and thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you very much for inviting me. Amazing. I'm, I'm really so happy that we could arrange this in from, from California to, to London. And the beauty of technology is that we, we have no limits anymore when it comes to these things. Um, yeah. So Good. perfect. So I want us to get started. I always like to start off these little interviews with um, just like a step back in time. And, mm-hmm. and really just to ask you, you know, what sort of sparked your interest going back I don't know, to your childhood or at some other point, but your earliest kind of memory that you can at least, you know, put your finger on when you were first sort of fascinated by art and creativity in some way. Well, my family were not arty. And when I was growing up, remember, we didn't have the internet. We relied on libraries and visiting archaeological sites and museums and galleries very often with our school because the parents my parents weren't particularly into into doing things like that if you like so my mum would take me down the library every Saturday afternoon and I do remember when I was quite young and at school uh, I, I do remember getting a book out on Andy Warhol that I think was on their display section and leafing through that and finding that quite compelling I didn't you know, obviously, I couldn't place it with any within any kind of art historical tradition. I would certainly have not have been able to label it as pop art or whatever. But it was fun. I remember mm. thinking it was very easy to look at, and uh, you know, that was the issue. I mean, it, you just—I was lucky. There was just a book in the library uh, that I do remember looking at, and it was. But it wasn't. It was probably another fifteen. 20 years before I actually saw Andy Warhol's in an exhibition, which curiously was Mm. when I was studying for my doctorate. Uh, I was staying in Sorrento and there's a lovely Mm. little art school in a, in a medieval cloisters there, which has Mm -hmm. art exhibitions and they they would have really good things. And they had this Andy Warhol prints exhibition called heroes, Mm. which was, as it says on the tin, (laughs) on the Campbell soup tin, as it were, no, as uh, you know, it had sort of some of the images of Elvis and, and, uh, and Jackie Kennedy and so on. And, um, and I, I loved it. And, uh, uh, but to be honest, Jeremy, that, you know, by then my interests in ancient art had been sparked. Well, really ancient and Renaissance art had been sparked by my father. Mm. I think, realizing from the fact that I used to love studying Latin at school, amazingly. Yeah. So I was very much a, lit- a literature person at that stage. And and he he really obviously used his imagination and took me to Rome 
Um, and it was just he, him and me. I, I had three sisters and who stayed at home with my my mother. But he took me to Rome, and I I do remember going into the Sistine, into San Pietro mm. there, and seeing a lot of Baroque and Mannerist paintings and the Sistine, the Sistine Chapel. I remember mm. before it was cleaned. So I thought like old masters were always kind of like brown. <laughs> yeah. Whereas actually, obviously when it was cleaned up, it was a completely different aesthetic, and you could see why everyone was shocked by what Michelangelo was doing so you know and and I I I thought it was very over you know as a kid I thought it was rather over emotional and you know mm. it, it wasn't until later that I I become became more attuned you know I was becoming more attuned probably to classical music and opera and theatrical art and then I really got the next time I went back to Rome as a kind of more mature person who'd studied a bit of art by then I really loved it. So I don't know. I guess I hope that's an answer to your question. No, it is. It is. I mean, it, there's so many. I always find it interesting because there's so many different aspects in the sense that like to, to you know, as a child, you have a memory of, of pop art and Andy Warhol, um, but then really classical art, right? A the ancient world. That's what sparked an interest, which I find fascinating because people wouldn't relate the two um usually right in any sort of circumstance even though there is a line that we can we can trace in some ways to you know the historical development of art um from you know the ancient world to now but uh but i think it's it's fascinating i do i will say i love sorrento i love rome um mm. sorrento is a lovely place even though they 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 like to focus on their their lemons obviously um <laughs> But uh, but it is amazing, and and I think for those who haven't had the pleasure or privilege to go to Rome, um, I can't. I mean, I don't think anybody can recommend it highly enough. My my favorite museum there was the Capitoline Museum. Um, that was outstanding when I went a few years ago. But which, uh, of course, I'm, is possibly the first public museum in the mm -hmm, world. I think exactly the fifteenth century as a kind of public, popular Roman rival to the Vatican mm -hmm. Museum. Yeah, and I think when what I, what I thought was most interesting actually going there in comparison to to other museums was that you could sense that history in 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 the way that they also presented the uh, the materials and the and the works that they had. Um, it was very old fashioned, um, yeah, and yep. and in a way that was kind of it kind of made it feel more, you know, you're in that setting, you're in that space, and it worked really well. I don't think you could do it in other places in the same way. But um, but in that moment, you know, you walk up those hills, you enter that building. It's it's spectacular. Yeah, and I think that it's good that they don't change the display because because you're you'd be changing the museology, you'd be changing the way that art was displayed. I'm sure it's been changed a little bit, but certainly 15th, 16th, 17th, and up to 18th. I would imagine after that there haven't been many changes in the basic display. And 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 just for the listeners, of course, the Capitoline Museum is very much about ancient Roman marbles and yep. bronzes, I would say, and copies of earlier Greek statues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, frankly, they, what was interesting was when I was there, they had an exhibition on um, gravestones, yeah, um, which was which was fascinating. Something that you would not necessarily connect to art. Um, really, people don't like to think about it in some ways, but it was uh, both historically interesting and and just shows how little has changed in terms of human beings and and human nature, um, and certainly how we think about ourselves compared to the ancient world to now. Yeah, and they're they're very moving, actually. Roman, mm. I assume you mean mainly maybe Hellenistic and Rome, but mm. mainly Roman 
Yeah, mostly Roman where, where, Hellenistic. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. But and, you, uh, and you, you, you might have a mythological scene or or a portrait of the deceased, and then you have this it's the inscription in Latin, which mm -hmm. is very moving. It, it it will give the actual years, the the, the number of years, months, and days yeah. the person lived. Exactly. Which we, exactly. We probably wouldn't do today. <laughs> no. We don't we don't do it right in, in in a lot of instances so it's it it shows i think a i don't know in some ways it, there's that definitely that ancient world understanding and familiarity with with you know death was obviously a much more centered aspect of their lives and but i think it's reflected in a kind of beautiful way in 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 those sorts of pieces um which is which is just interesting to compare not to get morbid this early <laughs> in the day, but uh, I, I find them very moving. Of course, the Romans used to have we have birth, we celebrate birthdays. Mm. They used to celebrate with great joy death days, so that yeah. you know when you go to Pompeii and the in the tombs were always outside the town. Of course, mm. there was a taboo against burying the dead inside the walls, mm. yeah. uh, and um, and and quite often you'll see like Pompeii in particular in the street of tombs going down to the Villa of the Mestres. You see these. Uh, often quite monumental tombs uh, with little sort of semicircular benches where mm. every year on the, on the anniversary of the death of the, of the loved one you would meet and have a have a banquet and yeah. you know, enjoy a party with them yeah amazing <laughs> I, I mean i know and i know i mentioned earlier that you did your you know your doctorate thesis on on pompeii essentially with the wall paintings i mean not yes. to not to dive into that whole topic but if you want to just give like a little I mean, because I remember we spoke about this before one lunchtime, but if you could just give us a little sense of like what you what you focused on there, because I think it's a really interesting uh, topic and it sort of shows your background, you know, in that sense as an art historian and where, you know, you're coming from because your knowledge of the subject is immense. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of your listeners will be of your age group and maybe having recently graduated. Um, and sorry, I'm just going to turn off my let me just turn off my outlook again, otherwise you're going to get noises. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, no, I, and, and I remember at that time, you know, you have these crossroads in your life, and I think that they're very, they seem much more scary, I think, when you're in your 20s, mm -hmm. like, which direction do I go in? And I, I remember um, being, we used to actually get a grant to do like a PhD for three years, like a full-time yeah bursary to do it from the government it's much you can still get them but they're much harder to get now i would say just like you know my undergraduate degree was was paid my fee tuition fees were paid for etc etc anyway um i remember being um offered uh, a, a grant to study an ma in uh, in renaissance latin mm. and um I, I i at one stage i was going to edit the letters of rubens in who, who wrote oh, wow. classical latin letters and that's all been done now so i didn't do yeah. that uh, in the end and, and and there are various other things i was going to do with literature and then suddenly i just thought actually you know i don't really want to stay in the uk i'd, I'd like to travel to do this mm. so I, I i had a very good archaeology um lecturer professor tomlinson at the time he was he was a greek archaeologist but you know we'd done roman material with him as well and I went to see him and I said, look, I'd really like to do something on maybe that takes me to Pompeii. I really feel very attracted to the site. My father, when he'd taken me to Rome, mm. by the way, he'd taken me to Pompeii for a day trip as well, uh, which was amazing and eye-opening, as anyone who's been to Pompeii will know. Um, and uh, so so in the end, I decided to do, um, I decided on, on the mythological paintings, a lot had been written about them, yeah. uh, just for the just for the listeners um who haven't been there 
uh, Pompeian interior decoration and Roman interior decoration is a complete system, often framed by kind of like architecture and like decorative elements, but very often um, suggesting that you're in like a, a, an art gallery or that, that, that there are central panels on um, usually three of the walls, the other wall being a door mm. for entrance to the room. And, uh, you know, you feel as though you're almost like in an art gallery or like today um, we have pictures on our walls. And the, the mythological paintings, many of them have been studied, but uh, I realised that what we call genre scenes in art history, scenes of everyday life, hadn't very little have been said about those academically. Mm. So I started by studying genre scenes, scenes of everyday life. Mm. And then my tutor one day said, look, just start writing now. You've got a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of photographs, not digital mm. at the time. They were kind of colour slides and photographs. Um, and... Um, so I started writing and I suddenly realized I'd written 20,000 words on three paintings in one room, oh which was gosh. a triclinium or a dining room, you know, a banquet room. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to the tutor and, and, and in the end, by then I changed my tutor. I had a bit of an interregnum with my PhD, as a lot of people do, and I went back to it. And um, I had uh, Roger Ling, who was a, the only, really one of the only experts on Roman wall painting in the UK. He was at Manchester University. Uh, which validates Sotheby's degrees, as you know. In fact, mm -hmm. I was awarded my doctorate with students, which was quite moving, quite nice. Eventually, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and um, anyway, we so he, I said, I'm just going to okay, we're just, I'm just going to make this doctorate about banquet scenes. But the reason, as you have said, that my thesis in the end was called sympotic scenes, which is mm. a much less well-known word for listeners. Yep as opposed to banquet, is that everyone had always called these things banquet scenes. But I I guess one of the key mm. points of my thesis was these aren't really banquets. They're not they're not having like a lot of food. And the yeah. only food that I could see evidence of um was like oysters. There are often oyster shells on the ground and basically they're drinking wine and eating oysters like we do with champagne and oysters mm. now, you know. And and so I thought actually these Roman scenes look to me much more like a nostalgic version, later version of earlier classical Greek symposium, yeah. uh, which was much more eating sort of like little tidbits and uh, uh, and, and drinking wine. Uh, so that was part of that kind of thesis. So basically, that's that's how that happened. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I love I love that because. I mean, just speaking for myself, um, I, when we celebrate uh, as Jewish people, we celebrate Passover, which is coming mm -hmm. up at the at the end of April. Um, yep. That is essentially a uh, we have a th we have a thing that we do called the Seder, which is an order, um, but it's essentially a recreation of a Greek symposium, um, yes. and so it actually follows a very similar structure. Um, and people don't actually people don't always know that, but we have this with this thing called uh, the afikoman, which is actually a Greek word. Um, which is for dessert. Um, we eat the unleavened bread, but uh, obviously, in most of these cases with these Greek symposiums, usually dessert was uh, was far more of a sexual uh, nature um, with a lot of these things. So it, it's funny how these sort of uh, traditions do continue, but in very different forms, uh, thousands of years later. I honestly didn't know that the Passover feast was based on a Greek symposium. Yep, right. it's yeah, it's because yeah, it's a discussion, right? And also, we when the, when that was actually put together, and this is a side note, we're getting, but uh, when that was put together, they were obviously it was during the Roman times was when the uh, was when the seder was kind of ordered, um, so and organized in a formal setting. So that was the uh, uh, that was from the, the Hellenists, of that, so from so the Hellenists, not the original Abrahamic Moses period, correct? But, 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, changed. the the instruction yep. to commemorate it comes from the Bible, but the actual the way that we do it and the ceremonial pieces of how we do it came much later. So that's interesting. Uh, and um, of course, the early catacomb paintings from mm -hmm. the Christian cat catacombs in Rome, uh, they actually depict um, the Last Supper actually as a Roman triclinium, you know, on couches. Yeah, exactly. And they could be semicircular rather than rectangular, mm -hmm. though, but that was a later development as well. So obviously, yeah. you know, when, when people when Leonardo paints the Last Supper, I think actually it's probably incorrect. It probably looked far more like a, one of my banquet scenes or symposiums or reclining Correct. on couches and so on. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. And and but in the time of Jesus, that would have been far more the norm. Um Absolutely. obviously than uh, than anything else. So it's it's interesting how all these things kind of get uh interconnected. Um mm -hmm. you know and obviously we've been talking a lot of you know this is very historical and 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 you were trained as an art historian as you said pretty much. Well um, no so... no actually I I wasn't trained as an art really? historian. This this is quite interesting and people may not realize this but um, it's changed a little bit, but mm. I don't think it's changed entirely. That when you studied ancient art at university, mm. it was always in an archaeology department, uh, not a department of art history. And right. generally speaking, I think it's still true that if you do an art history degree, undergraduate degree at universities, yeah. um, I think it's still true that you might do a little bit of ancient Greek and Roman art in the survey of Western art history at the start sure. of the course. But generally speaking, the whole focus is on Renaissance, post-Renaissance, right. maybe and a bit of medieval. Yeah. And so so I was I wasn't really we mm. we we did our we did our like classical art history, like we did things like Greek but special subjects like Greek vase painting. But it was taught right. by archaeologists who weren't art okay. historians. So yeah. I had to retrain myself using mm. the dis the modern discipline of art history and using all their methodologies and reading a lot of books about art historical methods to apply them to the ancient material. The ancient and, world. and and it was in the air. There were other people, famous people, most notably a guy called Paul Zanker, who mm. I'd recommend to all of your listeners to read his books. He he was at Oxford. He he was he's a wonderfully kind person. I used to to go and talk to him a lot about my research because my 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 supervisor in Manchester was an archaeologist, so yeah. I was coming out with all all this kind of what he thought was very <clears throat> non-empirical theoretical art history, but material he saw as very empirical and material, um, and yeah. and it was people talking with people like Yash Elsner that <clears throat> that that who understood the art history. So mm. it's just quite interesting the way those disciplines it were, is. were divided. Very separate. Even obviously we look at it as very there's overlap. Um, but but clearly also, you know, when you look at them from and also I think as from a technical perspective, you know, when you're doing archaeological work, it's it's very different if you actually are going out there um and uh, looking yeah. for things and 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 all of that stuff. The, and, the whole and of discovery. A, 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 yeah, and a lot of academic authors on what we might call Greek and Roman art history. Mm. Uh, art diggers you know they're archaeologists right. they spend their yeah. summers digging and they come back and write about it but i think uh, certainly i think it has increased as an art historic as a subsector of art historical as an academic discipline mm. to study it through an art historical methodological lens now that that right. has changed in the last generation yeah uh, so so then jumping off of that do you think that in some ways because i think you know some of our listeners uh you know i know will not come from art art you know history backgrounds or are necessarily as knowledgeable on all these kind of topics that we've been discussing but what, what what's the sort of benefit 
um, that you think? And that's a big question. But but what's the kind of, you know, the importance of having that historical knowledge and the historical context when looking at a piece of art? Well, I I think there's lots of ways of answering that. I mean, if you think of a lot of living contemporary artists, when you actually when they're interviewed or even looking at their work, a lot of them are very, very aware of history of, of of themselves working, even with contemporary art in a kind of quite historical tradition. There are, you know, this. There are a lot of references by a lot of well-known international, internationally renowned contemporary artists uh, mm-hmm. to the history of art. I mean, the most the most recent one that was the subject of one of my podcasts actually um, was a guy uh, called an artist called Kojo Marfo. He's a an African artist uh, based in London now. And uh, we we talked a lot in that podcast, and I did an introduction to an exhibition of his. And he would, yeah. I'd said, "Am I right in saying that there's quite a lot, although, the, although these are ostensibly black African people that we're looking at in these group portraits, that there's a lot of references to like Western art history?" And he said, "Oh, definitely. You know, I I go around the museums all the time. Yeah. I'm incorporating all of those layers into my art because I believe in, you know, it signifies my own personal beliefs that we're all." related be we black mm-hmm. or white or male or female or whatever our sexuality or religious beliefs are so so you know and people like damien hurst of course a lot i think a lot of this religious aspect is kind of it's not um people don't really want to want to think that someone like damien hurst is actually very interested in say judeo-christian religions where yeah. you know i wrote some of the most memorable hurst exhibitions of the early noughties when 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 white cube which represented him at that time was out at Hoxton. You know, I remember he turns the rectangular 20th century white cube building there into like a chapel. And, uh, you know, and, and then the altarpiece was butterflies, which he quite rightly said the, the ancient Greek word for butterfly is psyche. And that, that, that means soul. So he believed in kind of like the transmigration of souls in a kind of, you know, Judeo Christian sense and um and then he was also asked by uh a church i just try to remember what it's called it's opposite deutsche bank next to the roman medieval wall of london mm. is it st dunstan's by the wall something like that something uh, like he that, was actually yeah. asked by the church to come and actually decorate it so he did an altar a damien hurst altarpiece like with a silver skull pierced by nails mm. and that was actually used for the eucharist and wow. uh so you know it i think I think so that is one aspect of history like the religious part but you know Tracy Emin when asked what mm-hmm. her favorite work of art was it's it's an ancient it's a renaissance wooden four poster bed called the bed of Ware in the Victorian Albert Museum and you can yeah. see how that relates to my bed which is Tracy Emin's most famous work you know the unmade bed and uh, uh, you know so I mean uh, that's a that's one answer to why I think knowing about the history of art and about his history is in is is very important for our understanding of today's art world you know yeah yeah i think i think when we when we sort of look at that there's a a lot of people feel overwhelmed right they don't know where to start they're not sure what you know how to look at these things um they think it's too difficult to understand all the context uh all the symbolism all the clues right that might be might be present and and I sort of want people, you know, what they've learned hopefully by listening to this podcast and and your podcast as well is is you know that there's ways to enter this this space 
um, mm-hmm. without formal training to actually learn and understand without feeling uh, overwhelmed. But it is important. You can't appreciate it fully without having that historical context because everything has to be placed within that uh, that arc and that uh, that sense of history, you know. And it's overwhelming when you begin. I mean, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. You've been there. I've been there yeah. where you feel a sense of, oh, gosh, I'm so ignorant compared to my fellow students or fellow human beings. You know, uh, obviously, in the art world, you 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 know, a lot of my students are, are brought up in an art collecting or an art loving family. And they, you know, they have cultural capital, which I never had. But I think if you've got an enthusiast, you know, my my father just you know, lit the blue touch paper, as it were, by taking me to Rome and Pompeii. And that that just led me as a as a I'm naturally inquisitive. And I just wanted to know a lot more about the mythology, which mm-hmm. is then a fascinating journey, all interconnected yes. and and about symbolism. And these days, of course, then you had to have a book of, you know, symbols in art. Yeah. You had to read your Bible again. You had to get into your Greek myths. Nowadays, of course, you could just go on your smartphone and, you know, you've got no excuse not to look up what is what is a feather symbolic of in a Dutch painting, you know. Yeah. So there's no excuse not to get into it. I think what puts people off is that it takes a little bit of time and effort. Mm-hmm. And in this day's in today's world, you know, people feel overwhelmed by not having enough time to investigate things. Sure, exactly, exactly. So hopefully, you know, hopefully this kind of sparks that uh, that interest uh, a little bit. But uh, you know, segueing, obviously, we we met on you know I was on the art business uh, course at Sotheby's um, in London. Um, it's a very different uh, lens to look at the art world from the art business sense uh, to an art historical sense. So, what brought you to that art business um, side of side of the industry, so to speak? Well, like so much in the art world, and so many of the people that have been my guests on my podcast, I don't think any of them have had a straight route into that art world. There's a lot of serendipity involved. There isn't an obvious career structure. You know, in some ways, it's a bit of an exclusive world because you don't tend to see a lot of the jobs advertised. But, yeah. uh, you know, as our students learn, you know, it's about going around and going into galleries in, in your spare time and speaking to the curators. And maybe they think, oh, would you like to do an internship? And, you, you know, and, and it gradually grows like that. Uh, there are, there are, uh, people in quite high jobs in places like Sotheby's and Christie's that when you talk to them, they started as porters, you know, with very little knowledge of art, but they 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 fell for it and they used to listen to people, listen to specialists and collectors and so on. And they often make their way in a very unorthodox, uneducated manner into that art world. If you listen to my recent podcast with David Preston, uh, he's now, you know, the head of Crown Fine Art Logistics mm-hmm. for UK yeah. and Ireland. And, you know, in that podcast, he makes the point that he he left school when he was 16. And now he spends his time, you know, moving very well-known artists' works and meeting very well-known art collectors and what an exciting world it is. So the way I got into art business, uh, just in a nutshell, if I can, mm-hmm. is I used to teach in a classical, orthodox classical studies university department in West London. Uh, I... That was a point six, you know, a fractional post. So I used to make make up my income by doing uh, cultural tours abroad, you know, in Italy, Rome, Sicily, Pompeii, Turkey, North Africa, etc. Um, which was wonderful because I was seeing stuff that I wouldn't otherwise have been able to afford to get to myself, you know. And um, and and I also did teaching, you know, of my 
because there aren't that many people in London even today who you can reach out to and say, could you do a few lectures on Greek vase painting or Roman wall painting or whatever? Um, so I I was I won't go into the how this happened, but I I met someone who was working at Sotheby's on on this course called Styles in Art, which was a a survey course at the start of what used to be the undergraduate degree. They they mm-hmm. stopped teaching. Um, we might go back to it, by the way. And okay, um, exciting. Uh, and 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 the I did the first few weeks of that on Greek and Roman art, and apparently I got good feedback from the students. They loved it. You know, we went to the museums mm-hmm. and so on. And one day in 1999, Alison Smith, who now works at the National Portrait Gallery, she had been offered a job at Tate Britain, mm-hmm. and so which she took, and she was leading that course at Sotheby's Institute. And um, she rang me up and said, "Look, I'm leaving this. Which I just wondered whether you might be interested in the job." Mm-hmm. And um, I said, yeah, no, definitely. You know, it'd be very exciting to work in a in a different kind of place, like a private education institution linked to the art market. Yeah. And, and so I, I I had to be interviewed and everything. And in the end, I was offered the job and I started in January 2000. So it was really like a new millennium job, a real break. I stayed in that for a couple of years, teaching, you know, lead directing this, this art history survey. And then halfway through, um, I think it was 2002 or 2003, um, the the program director of the MA in Art Business, which had started in 98, for personal reasons, dropped out. And so they asked me whether I could just temporarily, they said, we can find someone else to do this. We can't find, you know, would you, we think that you'll be a good director for this. And I said, well, look, I know nothing about business. They said, that, you know, the students just want someone who maybe cares for, you know, you know that you're mm-hmm. that. So anyway, I, I I did that. There were 18 students that year, and it was halfway through the academic year. I met them all um, individually, and I asked them questions about, you know, how's it going and what would you like to see in the second semester after Christmas? They all said, we'd like to go to TFAF, the European Fine yeah. Art Fair. We yeah. don't do any study trips on this course. So I kind of introduced the study trips, which we're, mm-hmm. we're going to be doing that in a couple of weeks' time, going out to the Netherlands. So that was yep. the birth of study trips abroad as well. and. Um, I just dug my heels in immediately. It was an incredibly exciting world. You know, the, you know, this, that there's news every day. There's yeah. art world news every day, particularly market related. And um, I just found it so incredibly exciting. It was a steep learning curve because I knew nothing about contemporary art. I didn't, you know, I knew a little bit about old masters and I'd written academically about particularly artists working in the classical tradition, like Botticelli. Um, and, um, you know, but I, it was a big learning curve. Curve. I had to really, really learn quickly about contemporary art and, you know, learn really to understand what was good and what wasn't good. You know, mm-hmm. I really honestly at the time, and I'm sure some of our students still feel this, I couldn't have told you why a contemporary a work of contemporary art in like a suburban gallery was not really the kind of stuff that would ever find, enter a museum. You know, I really couldn't tell the difference. And, you know, we have to learn those things. And you can only learn them, as you know, by by going into the auction house previews, by going mm-hmm. into contemporary galleries like Whitechapel and, you know, Tate Modern and just really, really teaching yourself quickly and looking yeah. and looking and looking, you know. Exactly. So that's I mean, how that's how I got into art business from art history. It is. It's no, I think it's a wonderful it's a wonderful example of how, you know, as you say, the paths that you you take in this art world are are never straightforward. And everybody has a different story of how yeah. they ended up where they mm-hmm. ended up. 
Yes. Um, and I yeah. think it's I think it's wonderful. What I would say, I mean, the program, I I loved it. I we we had a great time. We had a, a good group of people. Um, the study trips were amazing. They were hilarious. They were uh, extremely educational. Um, at the same time, I mean, I'm thinking about tape off last year was, was, I mean, it was, I, it was eye opening and mind blowing. Uh, I've never been to a fair like that in my entire life. Um, it really is on a whole nother level to, to some of these other things that you see out there. Um, yeah, I, I remember that I, I, I had some illness at that point, so I mm. didn't go to tape off, but I did go to St. Ives and you came on the St. Ives. Exactly. Trip. Yes. And that was, cool. that was wonderful. Yeah. Um, that was really, and wonderful. we actually and, did some curating and hanging mm -hmm. with uh, Alicia Livingston, who correct, who's another podcast guest. <laughs> yeah, uh, she had it. She actually, she's now moved out to St. Ives for reasons I won't go into. She's now moving uh, okay. to Truro, which is like the county. Mm. Down the yeah. It's a bit of a shame. St. Ives is such an amazing artist, yeah, you know, and has a has a, a branch of Tate, of course. Exactly. That's and that's do you remember that, the drawing yeah, exercises in the Barbara? Oh yeah, at the Barbara Hepworth uh, gal. Yeah, in the garden. Yeah, uh, that was uh, that was wonderful. That was. I mean, my my skills were not uh, were not up to scratch, but uh, but it was uh, it was it was it was great. I mean, I was actually amazed at that. Uh, I mean, the collection of what they have in St. Ives was. Um, was stunning. Although I do remember it absolutely pouring with rain as we walked <laughs> up to the um, uh, what was the the Potters um, Bernard Bernard Leach Bernard Leach exactly, mm. and getting absolutely drenched as we walked yep. up those hills. Yeah, uh, well, it's on the Atlantic, so you get all of the when the winds in the southwest, oh. you get all of the clouds coming from the from the Central America coming over you on the Gulf Stream. You do, but yeah, yeah but it's, they, it it's, often passes quickly. There. It uh, yeah it did it was a heavy downpour and then it was lovely so uh, <laughs> just enough to get you soaked but it, I think I think that's the the beauty and as you say when you go in and you experience these things um, firsthand that's the only real way to kind of get an understanding it's 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 nice that it's very hands on um, rather than um, I mean you can deal in theory but theory only takes you so far when it comes to these sure. things. Sure. Um, handling so that, objects and seeing mm -hmm. the material objects rather than reading books is what the MA art business is all about because it's a it's an emerging academic discipline which probably we and and our students you know I think our students are underrated you know their dissertations tend there's so little scholarly material on this that they yeah. tend to have to go out and do field work observational research and interviews so they're actually spearheading this as an academic discipline i would say yeah uh, so you you have to go out there and look and visit galleries and look at buildings and everything yeah and obviously being in london is you know you have everything at your fingertips there which yeah. is <laughs> which is truly truly special not just in terms of the city itself but uh the ease in which you can get to europe and and things like that is uh is pretty spectacular that's um, true, actually. Yeah, I often wonder why people choose London as opposed to, say, New York, where, where yeah. there's an institute. But, you know, they both have their, 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 their benefits. But, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I took a group of this year's students to the Bloomberg building, mm. uh, which itself is interesting as a sustainable building by Norman Foster. But when they were building it, they found a huge amount of ancient Roman archaeological objects, right. which are now on <laughs> display in this art space. And they opposite that ancient material they have a contemporary artist uh, and of course beneath the whole building they they have the temple of the ancient roman temple of mithras which wow. is which is an immersive experience yeah 
it, when you go it, to so it kind of ticks all the boxes of art business yeah high tech immersive ancient and roman cross-collecting sustainability yeah it's it's absolutely unbelievable i mean i th i think like when i when i came to the end of the program and you know finished my thesis and and all of that uh good stuff i i was i was kind of reflecting on you know the big the big takeaways of mm -hmm. the program in my experience but but i'd love to hear sort of your perspective you know obviously as we've already said there's there's so many cross purposes with our business you know financial historical um creative artistic all these different aspects um so what are some of the key things that you hope like you know a student who comes into the program what do you want them to sort of walk away with it's a really nice question because i think a lot of people think that an art business ma is going to be a little bit like maybe an mba um mm -hmm. with a focus on on art and there is some kind of business school sausage machine where really we're only kind of you know um studying finance and how to make money and so on and i think uh, hopefully you realize you know i think the ma we always i always wanted to keep it more than that because i recognized that our, the students were often uh were coming from an art historical background so that was what, what their, their passion was students were often career changing and they were deliberately mm -hmm. moving into this world because they didn't like what they were doing often they're like yeah. law students so we get quite a lot of people who want a career change in law. So, so we, and, 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 and ironically, of course, we 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 put we have a lot of law yeah. in the program. It's really essential that students understand our students understand where the legal problems might be if they're working in a gallery, auction house, or any other kind of art industry. They they're not going to be able to be the lawyer, but at least they know when there might be a legal problem, and hopefully also the uh, the underlying ethical pinnings of mm -hmm. law but they understand when it's actually not right to um you know take cash <laughs> which might be money laundering uh, you know and that they're not just going to do it to make a quick buck so so we i think we hope that the students come out um with an understanding of, of the legal and ethical implications of what they're doing in a in what is often a, a proper for-profit art world not always but often a for-profit art world obviously um and um that they that they it's an interdisciplinary degree which makes it really difficult to do well in you know you've got yeah. to be able to do like a a spreadsheet and create an attractive aesthetic index and a clear index of maybe an artist or an art market sector's development through time uh, and at the same time you've got to understand you know uh in in the law exam that, that we have to do they did it a couple of weeks ago uh you know you're i given remember a case, that one yeah exactly and you're oh, told yeah. you know you're buying this work of art from moscow and you need to and you're going to you're moving it to a collector in new york what are the legal issues with this mm -hmm. object and deliberately the object might be something maybe with a with ivory in it you know which has ethical issues about moving mm -hmm. ivory around the world and so on so um and, and out of all that multidisciplinariness we my personal hope is that our students who might come in thinking in a very very blinkered way about the art world maybe only ever you know theoretical approaches to a work of art from their art history or if they're coming from a business background you know i only want to make i only want to see dollar signs you know i don't want to see the art and aesthetic ideas behind an andy warhol dollar sign i just want to see the dollars um <laughs> yeah. you know i i hope also that they learn to think laterally to mm. learn to think outside the box and to become entrepreneurial yeah you know it and I know that some of our students, it, that's what happens to them. They, it transforms them. 
uh, through the year. And, and one of the things, the most common thing parents or carers or loved ones of students say when I meet them at the degree ceremony, they seem to be really proud of their child, as, as all mm-hmm. parents are when they go to a degree ceremony. But the big thing they say to me is, we can't believe how our daughter's changed. Mm-hmm. You know, she, at the start of this year, all she wanted to do was art and, you know, and, and I didn't understand it. But now we can, now she knows about business as well. She's getting me into art and I'm getting her into business, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it it can really, really transform our students. That I guess that's the proof of the pudding is in is in the eating. And yeah, that seems to be a quite regular outcome, I think, for yeah. our students. That they really, yeah. really it really changes them. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I, I think that overall as the program goes on, it's it's definitely one of those experiences that you have that you know you're for sure eternally grateful for. Um, meet good people, experience amazing things, and and learn a lot along the way, which is which is kind of the key thing. But as you say, it's a developing field, and and I think for sure something that will continue to uh, to grow. And and what I've found most interesting coming out of it and starting my own business now and doing a whole bunch of other things along with it is the fact that you know I talk to young artists a lot. And they come out of art school with no knowledge of how to navigate the art world. Um, And that, I think, is really interesting. In some respects, I feel like, oh, there's a space here for this type of course, this MA in art business, but specifically for people who are pursuing an art career, like as an artist. Um, because they have they have very little understanding of how the market works and kind of go into decision-making processes that are not necessarily... Um, clear to them as to why they need to think about things in a certain way. Um, so I think that's a that whole area. So maybe maybe Sotheby's needs to needs to look into that as well. Yeah, I, I think that that so quite a lot of our students, as you might remember, mm. and they struggle because of it. Yeah. are from art school. They've been yeah. to Central St Martins. They 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 you know they've done studio art. Um, and and from all over the world you know from china from from new york that we we get a lot of fine art students coming to us because they say look i really want to stay in this world but i don't have the confidence to think that i'm ever going to make enough money by being an artist which is quite sad in some ways and i always encourage them to carry on that um and and they can struggle i think therefore with the lack of if they haven't done art history then they they might struggle with academic essay writing because art school doesn't teach them that either you know yeah and it's certainly i mean very few art schools as far as i know teach have a have a module which they should have on 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 entering the art world and entering yeah. the art understanding the art market when you when you graduate they don't like a lot of art teachers or artists themselves they don't like money they don't like talking about them. that's from my experience you know yeah. I, I and i i've said this before and i'll say it again that damien hurst has said that that one of the reasons he became so entrepreneurial he said was because goldsmiths where he studied art did actually have a little module or they did teach them about Mm -hmm. the art market now i don't i've never checked that out but i've heard him say it and i you know it may may have become a bit of a myth who knows but it generally speaking i don't think they teach about moving into how to move into the real world and i have another little anecdote about the Mm ma business that very in the early days it may have even been in the first year i'm just trying to remember it's in one of the first two or three years uh we had an artist um 
Henry Simonson. I've, I, I, I continue to follow his Instagram. He's really mm. developed as a painter, particularly of nature, really, really beautiful, very detailed sort of paintings of plants and flowers. And, and, and in fact, he might even be listening to this. And so, hello, uh, you know, shout out to, to Henry. I'm hoping that he will be my guest. We have been, you know, wondering about when we might do this. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that is because when he came to study BMA, he had this amazing story. He said, I'm I'm with a little group of like a commune of artists living in Brighton. Yeah. And uh, we realized that none of all of us are naive about the art market, about how to yeah. make money from our art. So we decided that we would all put a share of money into one of us coming to do this course. And we drew lots for it. And he said, I drew the short straw. And here I am. So he came and studied the MA business and went back and shared his understanding with his fellow artists and they uh wow. i think he's still down you know and, and doing yeah. very well now so that, i love that, that. you know <laughs> I love that. I think that's amazing. And I was talking to actually a few people uh, the other week and I said to them, I was like, what, you know, artists don't, uh, artists have become very individualized um, in this era of e-commerce and social media and everything like that. And they don't work together in the same way. And, you know, these forming of these groups, um, you know, like what you had with the secessionists or, you know, uh, the Wiener Werkstatt or, or whatever, the impressionists, all these people, you know, who work together to kind of develop art and to also make it work as a business. Um, that doesn't really happen as often anymore, uh, which I find I really right. interesting, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think those kind of movements of artists, I mean, you know, the YBAs, the Young British Artists, mm. coming back to that group of artists, you know, pretty much led by Hearst in terms of yeah. the entrepreneurship of them. Um, but there's a whole load of them who who are now really internationally famous, of course. Um, but they they never really saw themselves as a group, apparently. Yeah. And when you look at their art, it's, it's quite different. Yeah. You know? A lot of it is really different from Sarah Lucas is very different from, from Hearst and Hearst yeah, is different course. from... Chris Ophelia and Peter mm -hmm. Doig, you know, Rachel White reads, but they were all doing really amazing, innovative things. And that's yeah. because they they had this, I think it's because they did have this feeling that I've got to live in the real world. I've got to struggle and find a way. I want to carry on doing this, you know, and and I don't yeah. want to, to go and have to teach art. I want to actually just keep making art and have the time to do that. So, and now we look back at them, we label them. Whereas I think the groups you're talking about, they often would produce a manifesto, you know, the Dada mm -hmm. group, yeah. uh, the, the Blau Reiter group, they would create a manifesto and say, you know, we are going to be this group of artists. And that, exactly. that continued probably groups like Zero in the 1960s, you know. Yeah. Um, whether it still exists or not, I don't know. And, and, and forgive me, anyone listening to this, if, if you are part of a group, we'd like to hear from you. Oh, yeah, but you don't absolutely. hear it. Artists, are, I thought artists, I think like human beings have got more selfish yeah. It's not necessarily their fault, but they're struggling just to find, you know, make their own yeah, way. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. And I think that there, it, it's sad because I think there's an opportunity there um, in, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And certainly from a business perspective, you know, the pooling of resources, the pooling of talent, um, it's a common practice in most industries uh, one way or yeah. another. So, um, you know, it's something that I think, you know, just the people I've been talking to, I, you know, I'm like, consider it, you know, if you know people and you want to work together on something, it's not a bad idea. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a struggle in that sense. And, and I think in, in some ways that sort of, you know, as you just said, um, there's that element of selfishness, um, egoism, 
uh, things like that. And and I think that is sort of reflective of the times in which we live. Obviously, you know, there's that sense of uh, disconnection um, that a lot of people feel. Um, and the artist, I think, is in some ways, uh, you know, it's supposed to be the voice of that, um, but is is maybe struggling in that sense of finding what it is that right now, this moment is is what they should be saying almost. Yeah, and it's a post-COVID situation, definitely. Yeah. And I, I had a conversation with Top Taylor, who used to um, be one mm. of the co-curator yeah. of Rifle Maker, very well-known gallery in London. And uh, we, we he he joined us in St. Ives because he lives partly down there now. Mm. And um, we had a conversation over lunch, and we were talking about, we said, what's happening now? We we talked about the nothing time that we seem mm. to be in at the moment. And I said, I'm, look, I'm sure we're wrong, Top, because something will come out of this. But he said, yeah, but it's like slack water. The mm. tide isn't moving either in or out at the moment. Yeah. It really, I don't know. I don't know what you feel about that, Jeremy, but it, yeah. you, you can't quite see where things are going at the moment. You know? I, I, I do. I feel that. And, and in the sense, especially when I look at, you know, we talked a lot about this um, on the course when we talked about ultra contemporary arts. Yes. And and the ultra contemporary artists, however you want to brand them or talk about yep. them, um, it I find it I find it lacking, um, in the sense that it's here one second and then they're gone the next, um, yep. and it's sort of like, well, but what was it? Did it have an impact? Did am I thinking about it? Do I do I want to see it again? Um, you know, I just, it doesn't feel like there's anything to kind of, it's, it's not hardened onto a specific idea. Um, and, and personally, and I, I'm a bit biased because I mean, this podcast is called an aesthetic education. I, I like to think about aesthetics. Um, but I find that the lack of beauty in any sort of sense, um, is, which has become sort of a common feature in ultra contemporary art, I find not particularly interesting. Um, yeah, no, and that's and, just and, my and opinion. Course, this, no, but you've put your finger on one of the big historical problems about art, and the way the Greeks and Romans got over that problem was basically uh, the philosophical ideas about moving in two directions. I would say one into the notion of that there is this geometric, perfect, ideal world, the Platonic view of art, and a, a lot yeah. of today's artists, when you talk to them, they're very into Platonic ideas of art. Yeah. Of course, the Renaissance was really into that. The architects and the yeah. Um, but on the, uh, on the other hand, they were saying that art imitates nature, that, that you know, the yeah. whole point of art is to actually, for the artist, the sculptor or the painter to produce something that's almost more realistic than the real thing. Um, and, and, and um, you know, that's a, I guess that's the way they solve that. And then, of course, with modernism, you get this, they, that they go deliberately against that classical yeah. idea that art should imitate nature. I think maybe they go for more of the platonic idea, or a lot of them did. Mm. You know, people like Ben Nicholson that we saw in St. Ives, yeah. those wonderful sort of circles and triangles he often puts in his in his works, and and, and Hepworth to a certain extent. And yeah. um, I, I, but I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a problem, isn't it? Because many people would say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and it and, and and many people would say actually, I do find a lot of that ultra contemporary art aesthetic and beautiful. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, it's I I would say from my point of view that some of it I do find very beautiful and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, it but it's you know I'm aware that that is quite subjective. Sure, but. You know, you're the person. You did your you did your dissertation with 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 my colleague Oliver, I think. Yeah. On on the application of um like Kantian 
yeah uh, it's ideas on aesthetics to, yeah. to art so maybe exactly. i mean have you ever spoken about that that on this podcast because uh, maybe you could say where that where your ideas are coming from i mean we talk about we've talked about it in, in other ways i just the last week's episode was on schiller who i included okay. in my in my dissertation um but uh but yeah i talked about we did i did an episode on plato and uh his theory of forms a sure. few weeks ago yeah um, so i mean it's it's always a very complicated thing i mean and as you know if anybody wants to read my dissertation it will be available at the library at some <laughs> point um and all you have to do is travel to london but um the the interesting thing about it i think is that when you talk about taste and and Kant's really kind of quite explicit on the, on the on the fact that um you know taste is both subjective but there is that sort of um objective element of it um so it has mm -hmm. to contain certain qualities of it mm -hmm. how you interpret those qualities is i mean this is when we get into philosophy and anything can you know sort of be taken in a thousand different directions but i find it really I find it interesting in the sense that if you think about it from a philosophical perspective, from an aesthetic perspective, um, beauty has to deal with some element of truth. Um, mm -hmm. So that's when we can deal with, you know, the ultra contemporary and, and beginning to kind of understand that and seeing that element of beauty in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the danger of today and, you know, the lack of philosophical understanding that sort of comes with all this um, modern thought in some ways is that we can tend towards nihilism um, and if there's nihilism then there then there can't be beauty so in my yeah, opinion maybe that's like, what tot and i meant by not you know mm -hmm. nihil is obviously the latin for nothing nothingness exactly. and that we feel as though we're perhaps in a in a nothing age i i don't know whether that is to do with nihilism but um you know, you're you're getting me into like a philosophical frame of mind now, and feel that you 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 know maybe maybe that's another podcast. But I it think is. I think that um, I don't know. I I um I I I I I'm a judge on on I've been a judge on a couple of emerging artists um, panels, and yeah, and this is literally we you know the the first one I was a judge on. We had to choose people that that weren't selling their art in any big way that had never won a prize before it was mm. honestly and i would have to look through we all had to look through thousands of entries and your i just my eye just got attuned to you know i went past a lot of stuff that probably you would say was actually really quite aesthetic and beautiful but mm. to me it wasn't interesting in the sense that you know it was a great artist who was really good at there's a lot of very good portraitists who do really really mm. beautiful portraits for example but it wasn't kind of challenging anything to me sure. and so so the few works in the end that i've created as a shortlist were, were were often probably things that that you might see as unesthetic but in my opinion they had some other kind of truth behind them mm. yeah but then it, my way of looking at art is that I, I quite like the challenge of that and I try to work out what the artist is actually sure. trying to say to me. Yeah. Because I think that this person isn't doing this for the hell of it. No. They're not trying to be clever. You know, some artists are trying to be clever, but I think this person is doing it because they have a message for me. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it, and it's up to me to work out what's happening in that space between me and the work of art I'm looking at, which becomes then a conversation with this absent person but I, mm. I, you know, I think in their art, you're seeing into their mind and into yeah. their way of thinking. Exactly. Now, now, obviously, that person may not be someone with, say, my religious views or, 
you, you know, but I, I, I do think good art has to have what you're uh, coming coming to what you're saying in another way. I do think there has to be an element of what you know of of whatever we mean by truth in it. Something, yeah. something that is like eternal. It could be mythological, it could be platonic forms, but it is to do with some eternal truth that philosophers yeah. over the centuries have actually discussed. Exactly. <laughs> and there's different, but the problem, as you know, you know, Pontius Pilate famously said to Jesus, yeah. "What is truth?" Exactly. I mean, and you know, this this is the problem. This is the issue. It, it is. It, 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 it's constantly fascinating. It's it's I think and and what I hope people the listeners sort of take away from from this brief you know discussion <laughs> um, that we've had and and you know just how how much there is out there um, mm. you know there's there's so much to consider and and you can come at it from a philosophical angle I you know I that that I enjoy that debate I love looking at it from that perspective and and I love also changing my mind right I love not understanding a piece and then actually thinking oh that's horrible to then switching i'm like no i actually see something way more in depth on that um and i think that's kind of the joy um of that but you know and some, you don't have to go it there takes, sometimes it takes like your art history mm. a lot of a lot of the students i interview i notice in their transcripts they say oh i want to you know i was really inspired by a particular professor they did this amazing course on an artist you yeah. know Michelangelo or whatever and 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 I, and and then it that's what makes me want to do this the rest of my life so sometimes it can come from a mentor i think exactly. whose own passion for making you see through their eyes if you like what what you might otherwise not see yeah exactly and i think i think when people when people look at that and they they take a moment and then they can develop their own aesthetic understanding mm -hmm. um because it only comes with experience and familiarity um, and then obviously within the historical context, you know, you can look at anything and, and begin to sort of grapple with with those types of things. Um, you know, it was it was when I when I started that to topic for the thesis, Oliver was like, oh, my God, what are we? This is this is this is too big. And then we eventually were able to narrow it down. Um, mm -hmm. But it was uh, but I think I think there's like taking on those big tasks and taking on those big understandings with art is something that you can do any day and at any time. And that's quite a nice thing. I don't know of many on other industries or things like that that allow you to have that, you know, thoughtful opportunity to to think about life and and other things in so many different ways. Yeah, and people often say, "Oh, what a luxury," but it isn't. It's about fundamental truths in life. When you get to my kind of age and have been through some of the medical issues I've recently been through, you it does actually force you to think about mortality and immortality and what is the point what is truth you know and i think it changes your way of looking at the art as well um yeah. but when i think back i was thinking about the art in that way the moment i got switched on to this thing called art immediately it was that's what i found compelling about it yeah it's that it's that spark you know yeah. the first episode i did of this podcast was about prometheus um wow and that spark of that spark of creativity so yeah. I think I think that's that's really our point of origin, honestly, and that's that's yeah. where all of this kind of comes from, which I think is a is a really powerful uh, powerful piece. And um, of course, before Prometheus stole fire from the gods, they they had deliberately kept it from us human beings yep. so that we Correct. couldn't become cultured, exactly. so that we had to eat raw meat, so we couldn't mm -hmm. eat ourselves. So we, you know, it was the spark of culture as well as you know, uh, as well as a practical thing to have.
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's so, why that's why for Byron he was a hero. And that's where that's yeah. why we, we can and that, go. That's into why that. the God it's it, it re always reminds me of, you know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as mm -hmm. well. That, that, sure. that kind of that fire that Zeus didn't want us humans beings to have. It's because we could become them like gods. And as you know, Nisha and Co. Yeah. Also Sprats Zarathustra is all about that becoming <laughs> like a Superman and a god it like thicker. So that's a that was a very interesting myth, the Promethean myth. Yeah, it's fascinating. But I, I do just want to finish off, David, with um a few quick fire questions, if sure. that's okay, just to yeah, to get your little little reaction. So um, you know, if you could see an artist working um in person, they don't have to be alive, they can be alive or dead or whatever. Um, who would you wanna who would you wanna have the privilege to see uh working in person? Oh someone from the ancient world, I would say, because I I, I guess that otherwise I'm gonna say what everyone else is what a lot of other people are going to say, like Michelangelo working on the Sistine ceiling must have been an amazing experience. But from the ancient world, I, I think I'd like to be back in, when Nero's Domasaria, his golden house, mm. which has been partly excavated in Rome, uh, was being built and decorated by this very strange painter who was strange because he was Roman and an yeah. aristocrat. His name was... Uh, there's, we don't know if his name was Famulus or Fabulous because there's two textual traditions, you know, yeah. Uh, but it's either fabulous or fabulous. And um, uh, I think it's Suetonius, the ancient historian, who, when mm -hmm. he's talking in his life of Nero, uh, he says that he, he used to wear his toga while he was painting to show that he wasn't a Greek slave artist, that he was actually a Roman citizen, you know. Yeah. And that was really, really unusual. And of course, the other thing about his work is that when you visit the Domasaria, the the archaeological excavations, mm. you realise how innovative he was because it's th this is where we get grotesque style from. It's where Rafalg saw them and copied them in the lodges in the Vatican, um, you know, and then they appear in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Um, and, and grotesque style, i.e. basically monsters like human figures emerging from vegetal or animal forms, that grotesque style is what we find in the golden house of nero we don't really know whether fabulous fabulous invented that uh maybe it was just the sort of zeit steel but but mm. he's the one that i would like to have a peep at painting i think he must have it must have been you know must have been amazing seeing this guy wearing a roman toga oh my uh, you know and, and uh, trying not to get the colors from his frescoes onto this pure white garment you know amazing okay wonderful um favorite favorite museum to visit oh um, the, the one that first comes to my mind is um, the Baylor collection just outside Basel because mm. I like the architect Renzo Piano, yeah, did the shot in London, and you know, obviously mm -hmm. worked on the Pompidou Centre with Richard yeah. Rogers. Um, and 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 Mr. Baylor rest requiescat in pace. He he died a few years back. Um, he actually, we took the MA Art Business students. We'd gone there for Art Basel primarily. We took a coach out. It's just outside of Basel. Beautiful building, the Renzo Piano. Wonderful modernist um, collection. And um, he 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 came out and met us when we got off the coach. You know, and this is this was wow. this incredibly well internationally famous sort of art collector. And and I I remember particularly liking, loving that gallery for its mm. architecture and its. Um, and and how wonderfully inviting he was and to want to share his own art collection 
um, you know, yeah. with with us and with with the students. Um, but honestly, that's just what came into my mind for some yeah. reason. And obviously, there are. I, if I thought about it, I'd probably come up with something else. Yeah, it's okay. It's quick fire. It's quick fire. Uh, the last one, uh, the best exhibition that you have seen recently. Oh, um, easy. Actually, again, I've got probably two answers: old and new art. Certainly, the the best one I've seen recently because it really made me cry a lot and laugh a lot was Marina Abramovich's retrospective at the um, Royal Academy in Royal London. Academy, yeah. Oh wow! And you know, and there were things that that you it's interactive as well. So you you know, she makes you do things to to to. I know what an amazing artist. You know, it's experiential artist who suffers herself it always reminds me almost of um biblical figures you know mm. and the suffering for your for the sake of other people and i i you know i think another question you might have going to be going to answer be feeds into that which is you know what is what are artists for and mm. in my opinion artists are like she was they they can do things and suffer for us almost like religious figures in a way that we don't have time to or don't have the guts to ourselves and i i also think artists see beyond the horizon before the rest of us do so that's yeah. why art some of the that contemporary art the, the the stuff the contemporary art i really like is the more challenging difficult stuff I think when you're talking about those ultra contemporary artists, you're often talking about very, very commercial artists. I'm I'm doing the air mm -hmm. quotes there, who yes. are kind of selling, making a quick buck now. Arguably, um, have they got anything deeper in amongst them? But I think I think the good artists are ones that um, that are thinking, doing the thinking for us. Yeah, you know, Absolutely. thinking ahead of the horizon a little bit before we do. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, yeah, I was obviously not in London to see that, but I heard amazing things about that um, exhibition. So um, yeah. she's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that for anybody who hasn't had the privilege to see, you know, who's gone to London and, and seen what's on offer there, it's a, it really is a must because no matter when you turn up, there's something, there's something happening and there's something to look at. So yeah. And that afternoon I went to the Queen's Gallery I love that. One. A very different exhibition of Holbein. Ah, and amazing. A great Renaissance portraitist yes. working yeah. for Henry VIII, obviously. And that, yeah. again, incredibly beautiful in a very, very different way. Absolutely. Know? Totally different context. But the Queen's Gallery, they always, when they put on an exhibition, um, it's so thoughtful. Um, yeah. And, it's the, a, you know, it's they're just dealing with the royal collection, but it's obviously, it's so amazing what they have in that uh, collection. is It's outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. Very different world, obviously, from Abramovich. But the two, that's another nice thing about art. I do try to do two binary opposite things in a day. I often think, well, I'll go to a kind of traditional exhibition or a heritage exhibition, then I'll go to something that's going to challenge me. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, it's nice. And, and as I said, London is the place for that because nowhere else will you have all those different pieces coming together. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess yeah. New Yorkers would probably argue otherwise, yeah. and probably Parisians would. But you know, I think I I, I get where you're coming from. I think London, yeah. London. I what I would say about London compared to those other two cities, I I would strongly argue that it's far more diverse mm. and yeah. open to ideas and multiculturalism than 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 even New York and Paris. Yeah, you know. Yeah, certainly from an art perspective, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, yeah. Well, David, thank you so much. That was a fascinating uh, conversation. And I know that our listeners will have not only learned a lot, but hopefully enjoyed it 
um, as much as I did as well. So uh, really, thank you so much for for spending your time and your afternoon uh, with us. And and I, you know, hope that we can get you on again in the not too distant future. Yeah, and I might repay the compliment by asking you to guest on mine once your and, business is up and going for a few months. Oh, yes, exactly. Do that. So thank you I very much for inviting that. me. Awesome. It was a it was a great pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a follow on your preferred podcast listening platform, as well as on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find us under altalena.art. A link to David's podcast and social media can be found in the description of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to welcoming you back real soon. <laughs>